welcome to the podcast for St. Andrew's Community United Methodist Church, a loving, caring, overcoming community of faith where our mission is making disciples of Jesus Christ. Over the Memorial Day holiday, my family and I, we went to Branson, and we had so much fun. If you've ever been to Branson, you know there's a lot to do, and we had a great time, but one of the things that we decided to do while we were there is we were going to take our two teenage girls on the mountain coaster. Now, if you don't know what a mountain coaster is, let me explain it to you. It's when you sit in a little individual pod, and you go on a track that is not quite as scary as a roller coaster, because honestly, I would never do that because I'm not quite that stupid. But these are not quite as intense as a roller coaster, but you're kind of gliding through the mountains. And the track is metal, so it's very smooth as you glide through. And because you are in your own individual cart, you can control the speed at which you go, which I thought, okay, that is, that is my kind of ride. I can do that. I, if I get to control the speed, I'm good. So as we are getting into our carts, there's a gentleman that tells you all of the things that you need to know about how to go slow and how to go fast. And what he explained was there's two levers that you hold on to on the outside of your cart. And if you want to go faster, you just push those levers forward. And if you want to go slower and put the brakes on, you just pull the levers back. Well, I was very comfortable pulling the levers back as I would glide through the coaster. And I had done this before, and I remembered that really my cart made a screeching sound almost the entire time because I was pulling back so hard on the levers. So I had decided that this time, I was gonna let the levers go forward. I was gonna go a little faster and let the wind blow through my hair. And the other thing I've noticed about myself when I'm on these types of rides is that for some reason, I, I act like a little little child. Like I open my mouth like this, and then that's really a bad idea because you catch all of the bugs coming into your mouth. So I had decided I'm gonna close my mouth like an adult, and I am going to let the levers go forward, and I'm going to enjoy the feel of gliding through the mountains. Now, I do have to tell you, this was at night, so things were dark, but the track was all lit up, and it was really kind of exciting. Well, the guy that was giving us the instructions, it failed to tell us that there would be two separate tracks, and when you got to the end of the first track, you were supposed to slow down and then let your hands off of the levers because the track would then take you up to the next track. But he didn't ever tell me that. So I get to the end of the track. I've been gliding through. I've been keeping my mouth closed so I'm not eating bugs. I was gliding through the mountain, and I had let the levers go forward. But then I can tell that I'm getting ready to come to this transition. And so I slow down. I slow way down until I come to a stop. And I wait for the track to take me, but it doesn't, it doesn't take me on. So I just sit there and I'm thinking, Phil is behind me in his cart and it's dark. So he's not gonna know that I have stopped. So what do I do now? So I push the levers forward a little bit more and I go a little bit further and then I stop and I go a little bit further. And then finally, the track takes me, takes me up to the second track. Then I get on the second track and I push the levers forward. I close my mouth. I do all the things I said I would do and it takes me through the second coaster. But then I get to the end of that coaster, and I don't know what to do. So I slow way down, and I stop, 
I don't know what I'm supposed to do because the track is not taking me. And it's very confusing and I was very frustrated. Until I hear this voice coming from the sky. I kid you not. <laughs> and it says, keep going. And I looked around and remember it's dark and I'm like, Jesus is with me on the coaster. This is so exciting. But no, it was not Jesus. It was a man sitting in a tower and he had been watching me the whole time. How embarrassing is that? And I had stopped and he had to say, keep going. And so I pushed, the, I wanted to say, where were you the first time? Where? <laughs> and so I keep going. I push through. The track takes me on to the end. Have you ever been in a situation in life when you just didn't quite know what to do? And so you just stop. You just stop everything. But God tells us, keep going. It's time to keep going. Would you pray with me? God, we're so grateful that you're here in this place today, and we want to hear from you because we love the sound of your voice. So I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. So today we start a new sermon series, and it's called Creating the Church. Now, if you've seen the running theme throughout 2022, we're talking about create. We've talked about the creation story when the year started. We talked about how David said, create in me a clean heart when we were going through the season of Lent. We just came off how Paul talked to the Corinthians and said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We're talking all about creating. But today is a very special day. Today is one of the greatest holidays of the Christian church, and it's called Pentecost. And sadly, we don't do very much to celebrate it. It's not like Christmas and Easter where the secular world has grabbed onto it and decided to celebrate it alongside of us because it's a little hard to celebrate flaming tongues of fire on people's heads, isn't it? <laughs> but today is a great holiday. Today is just as important as the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ because today signifies a very important, significant event in our lives as Christians, and that is the creation of the church, the creation of the body of Christ, come together to worship him, to serve him, to be his people, to live in his kingdom. That's Pentecost. And so over the next several weeks, we're gonna be looking at the book of Acts, where Pentecost took place, and then we see how Peter and the other apostles help to fan the flame of the new church into being. And then we see Saul's conversion and he's renamed into Paul and he then spreads the gospel throughout the land. So we're gonna be looking at that over the next several weeks. But today we're gonna be talking about the very beginning, the creation of the church. And that brings us to our scripture reading for today in Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today, we are going to divide up this passage of scripture, these four verses that we are looking at. We're going to divide them up into three things, and we're going to dive in to what it means, what God did in the creation of the church. So we're going to look at that first verse, and here it is. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now, you may be wondering who they is. Well, they is the believers 
the people who had seen Jesus, the apostles and then a whole bunch of other people, had come to Jerusalem for a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. Pentecost was when they were going to be enjoying the harvest. They were bringing that in. And so there were Jews from all over that part of the world who all came to Jerusalem. Now, that's really important. You need to remember that. Jews from all over that part of the world who spoke it all different languages who came to celebrate a Jewish holiday. So Pentecost was not a Christian holiday originally. It was a Jewish holiday. And they were all gathered in one place. The believers, the people that Jesus had appeared to before he ascended to heaven. Because in the, ver or the chapter right before chapter 2, we can see that. We can see that Jesus said to them, don't leave here until you receive the gift my Father is going to give you. And he was talking about this moment. So they were all gathered in one place. Now the reason I want to focus on this particular verse is because this is what the church is all about. They were all together in one place. Think about that for just a minute. Here we are, you and me, all together in one place. And thousands and thousands of churches around the world right now, they are all together in one place. We need to not downplay what the Spirit of God does when believers are gathered together in one place. We talk so much about serving. We talk so much about going outside of the walls of the church, which is so important, but it has to start with us gathering together in one place. We have to be together. Now, that doesn't mean we can't worship online. We've got a lot of people worshiping online with us, and we're so glad that you're worshiping online with us. There is something really powerful about us all gathering together in one place. Let me tell you a story about a girl named Chrissy. This girl, she was a pastor's kid, and she grew up in a very loving pastor's home. Her parents were Jim and Carol Cimbala. He was the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. Her mom, Carol, was the director of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, the choir that went on to win many Grammy Awards. You've probably heard them sing. Chrissy was one of their kids. And she grew up in the church. She knew that God loved her. She knew that while the right things that she was supposed to do, but she said she never quite believed that she was good enough for God. She knew he was good. She knew he loved her. She knew she could have a relationship with him. But something in her just always said, you're just not quite good enough. And that one phrase, that one belief that she held worked its way into her life with the people that she chose to be around and the decisions that she started to make as she became a teenager. And when she was 16 years old, she was in a very toxic relationship with a boy, and she got pregnant. And he left her, and she hid the pregnancy from her parents for seven months. But then she had the baby, and then she basically just disappeared from her parents' house. She would be out with friends, she would be staying with different people, and she was trying to take care of her baby, and she would not come back to her parents. And Jim, her dad, said that he spent years going to church each Sunday morning, getting ready to preach to a huge crowd of people, but before he would go to preach to the people, he would sit in his office and he would cry because he felt so bad about how lost his daughter was and he didn't know what to do. He would talk to other pastor friends, and they would tell him, you just need to let her go. She's an adult. You just let her go. You let her go to make her own decisions, and you're going to have to release her. 
But he would stay in his office and he would pray to God and he would cry out to him and he would say, I can't let my kid go. I cannot let my child go. And one day God said to him, you don't need to let her go. You just stop talking to everybody else about her and just talk to me about her. And that's what he did. He continued to pray for her over and over and over again. And then one Tuesday night at their prayer meeting, it wasn't a Sunday morning, it wasn't a big grand service, it was just a prayer meeting where several hundred people were gathered to pray. And he said he got up and he gave a great message about the persecution of the Christian church around the world, and then they began to all pray for persecuted Christians everywhere. He said it was very powerful. But then, in the middle of that prayer service, he gets nudged by an usher, and the usher brings him a note. And he unfolds the note, and he said it was from a woman who he knew to be a very discerning, spiritual person in their church. And the note said, Pastor Cimbala, I think we need to stop this meeting and pray for Chrissy. And he thought, how does she know that? And he looked to God, and he said, how does she know that? I'm not even talking to anybody about Chrissy. I'm only talking to you about Chrissy. And he thought, how can I stop this meeting and just have them pray for my kid? But he did because he was obedient. So he stopped the meeting and he said, this is very uncomfortable for me, but I feel like we need to stop and pray for my daughter. And so the hundreds of people that were gathered there that night got in pockets of prayer groups and they began to pray for Chrissy. And he said the sound in the room was almost equivalent to the sound of a woman being in labor. He said it was as if they were birthing Chrissy's freedom that night. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And when he went home that night, he said to his wife, I know there is a God in heaven, and I know Chrissy is going to be okay. Then it was a few days later, Thursday morning. Jim is shaving, getting ready for the day, and his wife, Carol, runs into the bathroom and says, you've got to come into the kitchen right now. So he wipes off the shaving cream off of his face and he runs into the kitchen and his daughter, Chrissy, is in a ball on the floor, rocking back and forth. And she crawls over to her dad, can't even stand up, and she pulls on his pant leg in this desperate plea and she looks up to him and says, I am so sorry. I have sinned against you, I've sinned against mom, I've sinned against God. And then he raised her up and took her in his arms. When she backed away, she looked at him and she said, who was praying for me on Tuesday night? And she said, on Tuesday night, I was in my room and I could just feel the oppressive darkness that was around me. She said, I, I could almost see the dark abyss that that darkness was calling me into. And I knew that if I turned to it, I would be lost forever and my baby would be lost forever. But she said, then in that moment, I saw this incredible light. And I looked over, and Jesus was right there. And he came, and he wrapped me up. And do you want to know what he said to me, Dad? He said, I still love you. And then she looked at her dad again and said, who was praying for me on Tuesday night? It is so important for us to gather together, not to be entertained, not to come and see 
what the preacher says or how good the music is. It is so important for us to gather together as a body of believers who comes together to pray and to worship. And sometimes worshiping means we have nothing worth offering, but we offer it anyway. And sometimes worshiping means that we turn from the things that have kept our attention for too long and we start to focus on the one who is worthy of our attention. And sometimes gathering together means we stop and we seek someone out who seems to be hurting and we say to them, how can I pray for you? We get out of our comfort zone. We stop worrying about the words that we say and how they will come across and if we can pray right or not. And we believe that God is who he says he is. And God is the one who speaks and God is the one who answers prayer. That's when lives are changed. We should never forsake the gathering together of who we are as a family because God moves in those moments. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That was the launch. That was the starting point. They had to be together. So then we go to the next part of the passage. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, the thing I love about God is that he does, he does this one thing all the time, if you're looking for it. He always gives us a physical representation of a spiritual truth. Okay, let me say that again. He gives us a physical representation, something we can see and touch and feel and understand, a physical representation of something spiritual that we can't see and we have trouble understanding. And fire, in this case, is that one physical representation of a spiritual truth. Fire is so important to God. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see the fact that God came to Moses in a burning bush, a bush that was in flames but not consumed. We see in the Holy of Holies and in the tabernacle that God <clears throat> led the Israelites with fire, that his presence was shown in the tabernacle through fire. And now, in the birth of the church, we see that God is coming to us again in fire, a physical representation of a spiritual truth. So let's talk about what fire is. You have to have three things to make fire happen. You have to have heat, so an ignition source, something that ignites the, the spark into a flame. So you have to have that. Then you have to have fuel, something that is willing to burn. And then you have to have oxygen, 16% oxygen to be exact, in order for fire to burn. So let's break that down. If in order for the church to be what God wants it to be, and he's using fire as the example, then he has to have an ignition source. He has to have two things coming together to create a spark. Well, those two things, that's easy. People and God coming together creates a spark. Beautiful people all together in one place and God raining down on us and it creates a spark. But the next thing I love, we have to have fuel, something that is willing to burn. That's our part in this. We are the fuel. We are the thing that is willing to burn. When God looks at you and God looks at me, he asks us the question, are you willing to burn? Are you willing to burn for me? When we ignite the spark and we let the flame go, are you willing to burn so that the whole world can see? 
Are you willing to allow the, the Holy Spirit to be alive and at work in you? Are you willing to be the fuel? Because you see, that's the interesting part about what God does in us when the Holy Spirit comes. We often think that we have to do all the work. We don't, we just have to be willing to burn. And I don't mean burn up. I don't mean get hurt. What I mean is to be a light, to allow that light to burn in us continually. Are we willing to burn? And then we have to have the oxygen. Like a mighty, violent wind coming from heaven, air blowing through. The thing I love about that is that every time God's Spirit is mentioned, either in the Old Testament in Hebrew or the New Testament in Greek, the translation for Spirit is breath or air. So once God and people collide, and it ignites a spark. And once we say, I'm willing to burn for you, I'm willing to let my life be a testimony to you, then God pours out the oxygen. He pours out his breath, he pours out the air, the fire of his spirit is what keeps that fire burning. And all it takes from us is a willingness I think so many of us get that wrong. I think so many of us think we have to conjure up the strength and the energy and the oxygen in order to do those things. But what God is saying is, no, I'm the one who does those things. I just need your willingness. So what is it that keeps us from being willing? Are we afraid of what God will do with us? Are we afraid that we might come across as somebody who is an idiot? Are we afraid that we might be made a fool of? What keeps us from being willing if that's the one thing he's asking? We just need to be willing to burn. And then the next part of the phrase. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this passage right here has put a lot of division between a lot of denominations in the Christian church. That one verse. Because there are some denominations that believe in order to be filled with the Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. Otherwise, you're not filled with the Spirit. There are other denominations like the Methodist Church who believe that you don't have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the interesting thing about this particular verse is I think a lot of people take it out of context. If you put it in its context, the whole reason the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak in other tongues was because there were people present who understood other languages. Because right after this verse, it goes on to say that all of the people, remember I told you a moment ago, all of the Jews that had come from all over that part of the world who spoke all different languages heard the violent wind. And they all came to where those people were. And then all of a sudden, these people can speak in other languages. It would be like a mighty wind blowing through this place, and everybody out there hears it. So the people that speak Vietnamese, the people that speak Spanish, the people that speak German and Russian and whatever else they speak in this area heard the wind, and they come to St. Andrews, and they come in those back doors. And all of a sudden, I can speak Spanish. And all of a sudden, Chuck can speak Vietnamese. 
The reason that that happens is because the Spirit knew there was a need, and the Spirit makes possible the impossible. So in that moment, in that particular time, those people needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and if they just spoke in their own language, they wouldn't have heard it. It would have been foreign to them. The Spirit sees the need and then makes possible the impossible. As the church was created, Peter did some pretty incredible things. And the Spirit enabled him to do things that he'd never been able to do before. And there were two people that he came in contact with during the creation of the church. You can read about it later in the book of Acts. He goes to Lydda, which is a city, and there's a person named Aeneas. And Aeneas was paralyzed. And people heard that Peter was nearby, so they went and got Peter and said, you need to come and you need to heal Aeneas. And he comes to Aeneas, who can't move, and sits on his mat all day long, and looks at Aeneas and he says, Christ heals you, get up and walk. And he does, he gets up and he walks. Then there's a nearby city named Joppa, and there's a lady there named Tabitha, and she had died. She was a widow and she took care of other widows. And she did all these incredible, wonderful, kind, and loving things. And she loved the Lord. But when she died, the people there went and got Peter from Lydda and took him to Joppa, and they said, we need you to see what has happened. Well, Peter, with the Spirit being alive and at work in him, saw the need. And then the Spirit made possible the impossible. And he looks at Tabitha, and he says, Tabitha, come back. And she comes back to life. Think for just a moment about what those two people represent, Aeneas paralyzed, Tabitha dead. In your life, have you ever felt paralyzed? Have you ever felt like everything just came to a stop and you didn't know what to do? The Spirit sees the need and is able to meet the need by making the impossible possible. Have you ever felt dead? Have you ever felt dead inside? Maybe you come to church every week and you still just feel completely dead and you don't tell anybody because that would be terrible if you came to church every week and still felt dead. You wouldn't want anyone to know that. But the Spirit, when we gather together as believers, sees the need and makes possible the impossible and says, get up and come back to life and fans into flame what you've lost. But the same is true of the church. How many churches do we know that are stuck, that are paralyzed, that can't seem to move forward? They just do the same thing over and over and over again because they feel like they're checking a box that some mysterious person somewhere told them that they needed to check, but they're paralyzed, they're not doing anything. Or how many churches do we know that are dead? Not what God intended for us to be when he created the church. The Holy Spirit sees the need and makes possible the impossible. So what does that mean for St. Andrews? When God looks at you, he sees a perfect and wonderful creation, a vessel, a spark, something willing to burn, something that he can ignite into flame. 
And when we all come together, the light is so much brighter. So if you have felt like you just wanted to stop coming to church, or you just can't quite come back, and you've put on the brakes, I hope you'll hear God saying, keep going. It's time to keep going. And if you feel like there's nothing in your life that is worth looking at, and you have put on the brakes, God says, when you and I collide, something powerful happens. And all I need is your willingness. That's all I need. So keep going. And if you feel paralyzed, or heaven forbid, you feel dead inside, push forward on the levers and keep going. God has something grand and glorious for us as a church, as individuals, as families, as married couples, as single people, as brothers, as sisters, as sons and daughters. But we've got to keep going. So I hope that in your willingness to burn, that you will realize that what we've just talked about from the scripture is not something that is long gone. It's not something that is dead. It's not something that was just for that time. The spirit of God is alive and at work in each of us if we will allow him to be. If we're willing to burn, he will. And all we have to do is ask. Let us pray.